Welcome to BEWorks Conversations. I'm Kelly Peters, the CEO and co-founder of BEWorks. In this series, I talk with the world's leading scientists who are experts in behavior. In each episode, we explore how their cutting-edge research can help us understand and tackle the challenges we face as a society. And we talk about how organizations should apply these insights to move forward during and after COVID-19. I'm very happy you're here. Today I am speaking with one of my fellow co-founders and very good friends, Dan Ariely. Dan's groundbreaking experimental research and prolific writing has made him one of the most prominent leaders in the field of behavioral economics. In our conversation, Dan and I talk about his experience working with governments and solving challenges created by the pandemic, including how governments should communicate with citizens and the psychological side effects of the uncertainty that we're all living with. We also get into how uncertainty impacts our perception of risk and science. We talk about the psychological side effects that are created by the uncertainty of lockdowns. We talk about how self-quarantine is a public good problem And finally, we talk about how science is rising to meet the challenges created by this pandemic. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Hello, hello. So, um, so much to talk about. Yes, what a a period. You know, know, these days, you know, this uh, uh, painting behind me, uh, used to hang in my grandparents' house. And I, uh, as a kid, I thought this was like the style to try and imitate. <laughs> um, and then uh, my mother took it. I'm in her house now. And for the last two months, I've been sitting on the same chair with the same uh, picture behind me. I don't think I've ever looked at anything, <laughs> well, I'm including myself, for such a long time. Yeah. Well, um, I know that- uh, that style has actually been reflected in the different pieces that you've you've collected. The different uh, the the mobiles, 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 and uh, I've seen other art that's that's those bright primary colors, abstract, modernist. So it's, yeah. uh, it's your grandparents had an influence. Absolutely. Um, my my grandfather. <clears throat> who would have had his 103 birthday um, yesterday, 103rd birthday. Uh, he was he was also, I, I was reflecting on it on his birthday. On, um, he, he was a civil servant, uh, but was actually uh, very much against classical economics. So he was, he was an economist uh, trained in London Business School, uh, sorry, a London School of Economics, London School of Economics and and he worked for the UN and worked for the Israeli Tax Authority, but was always uh, worried that the economics was leaving too much out. So maybe that's another influence. <laughs> how did you um, like? How did you know? Was this through um, conversations? Did you come across some old letters? Did you look at some of his work? So, um, so I used to spend a lot of time with him. Um, I used to go to his office. And, and work with him. Um, and we got to talk a lot, and they also used to take us on vacation. 
just the grandparents and and us kids. Um, and then he he didn't do his PhD um, until he was in his sixties, and his PhD was kind of a mix of philosophy and economics. Hmm. Um, and he he. Yeah, we had, we had uh, you know, for, for a young kid, we would have discussions about taxes <laughs> uh, when he was in charge of the income of the state. It was, it was really interesting. But yes, I think, I think he, he did have a, a large input. Actually, you know, it, it's um, really interesting when we, sometimes we have these big steps and we say, oh, this is the influence of that person. But often it's a lot of little things that we don't really notice where they are maybe just with retrospective view we can say oh there's been lots of change in this direction maybe it's coming from yeah i think that that's one of the things that's interesting about being a parent is seeing how similar my daughter is to to me or to her father in her interests in the world and um and the things that she intentionally you know rejects and it's fascinating seeing that, that that development happen. And the, you know, in terms of the nature nurture debate, the influence that that we have on on nature is is so significant. Yeah. So, you know, uh, do you think that your willingness to get your daughter to rebel uh, and accepting it so warmly and lovingly could be connected to the fact that you see yourself in her? Like, so you say, oh, I, I would have liked to behave like this. How could I prevent her from doing this? Like, if you're the same person. Yeah, there's definitely a, a feedback loop that works uh, both ways <laughs> there. As someone who's open-minded and believes in uh, that independence and, and you know, uh, not being a, a fan of, of authority, uh, heeding authority for authority's sake, I've... I've definitely cultivated that in her, which sometimes makes the, you know, it, it's very much taken away my ability to use that as a mechanism <laughs> for compliance because, you know, she's like, you've always told me not to just heed to, I need a good reason. <laughs> um, so, so is that me, you know, justifying? It's like, that's what I wanted her to say. Yeah, there's some pride in there. And I tell her, yeah. I'm proud of you. Like, that's a good reaction. You're right. I didn't give you a substantial reason why that's not a good course of action. Yeah. Yeah. So teenagers and, uh, and COVID-19 is a little hard. Um, yeah. So she thinks I'm, I'm overreacting a bit and is always pushing the limits on, on the rules. And she's trying to comply with them, but she uses social norms very much, uh, much more even when I try to compel her with, you know, the statistics or what the policy guidelines are. She says, but when I go out, very few people are wearing a mask. Why should I? Or, you know, I understand if I'm in a store and it's crowded, then yes. But otherwise, I don't see why I should. And it's it's difficult because teenagers have are are sometimes just very difficult to reason with. <laughs> yes, 
but also, you know, there's lots of arbitrariness in, in these decisions. And uh, I, I was involved uh, to some degree in the decisions of the Israeli government about COVID-19 and, and what instructions uh, to give people. And, you know, partially uh, one of their realization was that, or at least the assumptions, was that if you gave different instructions to different age groups or different instructions to different areas in the country, which, you know, the city is not the same as, as, a, as a village, um, it would seem more arbitrary than, than if you said, here are the rules. Um, and the truth is we, we don't know because we've never had such a, a case like this before. But some of the theories were that, um, you know, people would not necessarily understand the transmission mechanism and therefore having flexible rules for in some cases versus not others might further erode the trust of the government. So rather than doing the right thing, you do the easy thing that looks like um, there's no arbitrariness, even though it's more arbitrary. Yeah, that uh, seemingly arbitrary uh, is, is, is very complex because the science is always evolving. And the consensus around the science takes time. And, and then there's the public policy implications of that science. And so this issue of the masks was very complicated. And I think it, it harmed a lot of the, the public health uh, philosophy and, and ultimately the authority. And people write at this moment are, are debating the merits of masks or even just trying to understand under what circumstances am I supposed to wear it and for yeah. what level of efficacy. Yeah. And, and part of it, I think, is, is the communication of science as, as without the complexity and without the uncertainty. So, you know, statements like masks don't work or masks are crucial um, don't, don't really help. And, you know, when, when we ask people, like, what do you think is the percentage, what is the chance that if you stand next to somebody who is infected, that for 15 minutes, what's the chance you'll get it? You know, kind of probabilistic reasoning is just not part of the story. And, and the, the complex mechanism uh, is, not, is not part of the story. And I, th I think part of it is that the media is so short with explanations and headlines. And so rather than saying uh, the debate is, should never be mask help and don't help, it should be by how much they reduce the chance of either spreading it or getting it. Um, but, but if we started by the probability, probability change, um, but if we said yes and no, that seems like a much bigger transition. And we're also not, not very good in expressing uncertainty. Like we often don't say early days, we're not so sure, but here's our best estimate currently. That's really what we need to say. But um, I think also with, with good intentions, uh, the scientists are not thinking multiple steps ahead. They're not saying what happens when I would revise my opinion. Uh, they're saying, what's the chances if I say something now, people would 
listen and take it into heart because I want them to right now. Yeah, and people very much struggle with this fundamental characteristic of science. We're, we're so used to wanting nice, tidy truth as opposed to this humility, this uncertainty, this you know, best approximation of what we know to be true. I mean, what kind of nonsense is that? <laughs> so it makes it very difficult for public health to, to be scientific in a way that provides people with often the strong guidance and the level of certainty that they, that they, that they need to know how to yeah. like, do a wear one or do another one. Yeah. And, and, you know, another thing that happens with, with COVID is that uh, there were some small events that had a big impact. Like, you know, the soccer game between Spain and Italy had a big impact. Uh, the choir music uh, group in Washington State had a big impact. Uh, there was a wedding in Argentina. And, and those things make the numbers look very, very different in the story. Because with a pandemic, you have, can have small effects early on that make a big difference. In, in how things how things develop um, and and that's incredibly confusing like even in Israel you know should we uh, <clears throat> should we compare ourselves to Italy should we compare ourselves to Jordan you know what, what what's what's the right comparison we don't know right what is the what is the alternative what, what would have happened if we didn't take this these measures and the U.S. too. I mean, different states are doing very different things, but you don't know which one to compare to because they're doing so many things differently. And um, you know, places with high density of public transportation, like New York City, London, very different story. Places like LA with no public transportation, virtually, very different story again. So. You know, the, 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 the mechanism and the nuances of, you know, random events like a soccer game and, and non-virus friendly infrastructures like public transport, all of those things have great contributions, but they're not part of our mental model of how a virus is transmitted. So, so far we've talked about uh, uh, ambiguity and the challenge of uncertainty in helping us to understand the appropriate course of action. We've talked about the complexity of relativism in, in absence of something nice, tidy, and easy to compare, you know, we're lost. Um, we've talked about individual events being heightened in terms of their, their salience relative to maybe a broader perspective of things all kind of adding to the overall confusion. Another one I would suggest would be counterfactual thinking. So for instance, uh, people are saying, you know, look at the hospitals, they're not overrun. Look at California, it was supposed to be horrible, they're not overrun. You know, we've, uh, we've overreacted and people aren't understanding uh, the cause effect relationship between, because actions were taken and actions were taken early. And so the cases were mitigated. But we have the models that show these scenarios that show us the, you know, what the potential could have been. And yeah. that's a real struggle for people. 
Yeah, and and I also think it's a struggle for 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 the science. So I looked a little bit about uh, the predictions of models, and I don't know what it is, but pandemics don't seem to follow the models, and I don't think anybody understands why. But um, R zero uh, seemed to change empirically, not in the models, but R zero seemed to change as the life cycle of the virus and you know some speculations are <clears throat> that it's herd immunity that it's time that it's mutation uh, non-symptomatic uh, people we don't know what it is but if you look uh, at the history of pandemics you will see that the r0 seem to change they don't react in the way that the the models react but we don't have a good biological model for that. So in the model, um, R0 stays the same aside from human intervention, like social distancing or mask and so on, but it doesn't inherently uh, change the, the, the actual level of infectious of, of, the, of the virus. Um, and, and the models, I think, also have something um, very powerful, which is they have an image of how many people would get infected. Um, and that catches a lot of attention and therefore uh, <clears throat> creates lots of fear, also memory, and therefore when it's, when it's wrong, um, has a lot of price. And uh, these models also are so dependent on initial assumptions, right? When you have a, a, an exponential model, you make slightly different assumptions up front, things change dramatically. I think it's very interesting that uh, people judge epidemiologists um, very, very viciously for you know, their, the, uh, the reliability or the accuracy of the prediction matching the reality. And yet, and yet there's so many other areas in life where predictions would be very useful as a mechanism to evaluate the caliber of, of an expert. So, and, and to hold experts, first of all, please make a prediction, document that prediction, declare your assumptions so that we can go back and, and review your thinking and, and potentially make your model stronger in the future. And we should be doing that with our financial advisors, our, yeah. Our other leaders, um, you know, across the board. The people who write horoscopes. <laughs> so when we think about when we think about some of the challenges that we have um, and some of the good practices, maybe this this is kind of an obscure one, but um, you know, we we're holding the epidemiologists to account for what should just merely be a model under the scenario. You know, we're just like if we did nothing, this is how awful it would look or on yeah. the basis of these assumptions, this is how awful it would look. It's only meant to be a model, or yeah. you know, these are the predictions on the basis of these. these. But, but this-, this So, so let, let me, can I, say, can I say two things? Please. Two things about this? Please. One is that when I just came to Israel to start working on this, I talked to every epidemiologist who would talk to me. <laughs> and, and what I realized is, you know, this is their area and they are designed to think about the risk. And 
they were also afraid of, of things that were not in their model. So I can't tell you about how many people told me, but yes, what if there would be a terrible mutation? And, um, and you know, in, in modeling, there's, there's lots of freedom and choice. And I suspect that they were extra cautious and worried, right? All of a sudden, it was their goal, their role, to give us a prediction. And they had all of these stories in their mind, and, and they felt that they are need to protect it. And I think, you know, we, we, can't, we can't do this experiment, but I think they were overly pessimistic. Like, like the people I talked to, that says, don't dare to open anything. The virus could mutate, and that would create may maybe something horrific later. And, you know, and I said, what the chances, and they have a probability, but it's not in their model. But they have underlying fears that were, that were in that. So, that so, so I think they were afraid. It's their business to be afraid. Right? They're probably trained to be afraid of those things. Um, and so, so that's, that's one point. The second point is, which I think they didn't take into account, is that once politicians make a decision, it's very hard to reverse it. So imagine as a politician, you decide to quarantine country. And two weeks later, you discovered, well, maybe it was too harsh. If you ease up, the number of sick people would go up. Actually, even if you don't ease up, the number of sick people would always go up. <laughs> the cumulative number of people would always go up and the cumulative number of people dying would always go up. But, but if you do a quarantine and then you ease up, odds are the number would increase uh, in faster rate than before. It's part of the cost benefit. But now you would not be the one who is saving people. You will be the one who is killing people, right? So when you when you announce a, a harsh quarantine, you're the saver. And when you ease up the quarantine, if more people would die, even let's say that it's a, a trade-off between money and, and life and you know, it's worth for society, you'll be blamed. So, so I think the, the model did not take the decision maker that will adjust. In their models, you do something harsh, it's an insurance policy, and then if you find out it is not that harsh, you can always ease off, right? So you say, uh, like in the signal detection theory, you say, what are the, what's the harm of shutting too harshly? Well, loss of the economy for two weeks. What are the uh, risks of uh, being too uh, liberal that the pandemic would, would spread? Let's be too harsh. But, but the model assumed a decision maker who can adjust uh, over time with new data, but, but for politicians, there's a very big asymmetry about locking and, and opening. And by the way, for a politician, think about you, you get to shut down a country. What power, what power trip this is. And then you get to give people money. <laughs> it's, you know, the, the next generation will, will pay off. Uh, so I think it, it plays out to a lot of, um, uh, power dynamics of, of governments. Anyway, I was, I was uh, interrupting you. No, 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 that's fine. I'm just uh, building out these uh, differences and similarities between 
um, what we know about scientific thinking and um, the, you know, the biases in decision-making and policy-making and compliance with policy that, uh, that we face. So, so some of these uh, challenges exist um, with, with everyday people as well. So it's very difficult to one day be told to quarantine and then the next day told that it's okay. And then the day or the week or the month after that which we're seeing now, we've got five countries that have moved back into lockdown. And it's been 72 hours, I think, since, uh, since several of those countries have reinstituted those, those lockdowns. And I wonder how those people are feeling right now. Yeah. Um, must be further deterioration of trust in the, in the government. Um, and you know, especially, I think I think the communication has been uh, very problematic. So, you know, communication needs to take into account uh, a sense of control and helplessness. And when it doesn't, it's just terrible. So, not knowing, like we we can we can we have tremendous resilience, but for resilience, we need to know uh, what's going on. But if people say, stay tuned, I'll, I'll keep you posted about what's going on. You can't, you can't make plans. Um, so do you, do, you, um, do you have any summer plans? I, I know you used to go to Burning Man. This year is canceled. This year is canceled. Um, I don't have summer plans other than a vacation. And there's no indication for Ontario that our plans will change. So it's going to be things like uh, hiking in the, in the parks and things like that here. Yeah. Uh, so, so think about what it means. Like, like I, I think it's much easier to have change, change in plans rather than have no plans at all. <laughs> right? So, so the, the, the stress of not knowing what, uh, what to do and, and it's understandable and of course, when you communicate it, you have to tell people, here's the current plan, unless there's going to be X, Y, or Z, we're not going to make uh, uh, changes. So you can communicate lack of certainty, and, but, but without plans, very hard, very hard to live, very hard yeah. to... It's an interesting point because that's actually the thing that I've thought that uh, the province of Ontario has actually done a, a reasonably good, good job with. So the premier here, made it clear pretty early on um, when we were still over 600 new cases per day that in order to move into a phase one we would need to have a sustained period of two to four weeks of fewer than 200 new cases per day with 90 percent of those traceable within 24 hours meaning that they're not not unknown or not uh, community transmission, or um, it also means that we have the infrastructure in place in order yeah. to actually do proper contact tracing. Um, and also and also that we have our, our shelters for our um, disadvantaged communities, um, such as women's shelters, um, are, and then as well as um, you know, our homeless shelters and other facilities um, with people who are dependent on support, um, that there is infrastructure in place to do testing. So there's a, 
Now it seems complex, but it's it's pretty straightforward. So you've got you've got basically um, you've got testing mechanisms in place. You've got tracing mechanisms in place. You've got uh, compliance tools in place and, and, and amounts and amount of new cases amounts. And so for me, I felt that that was actually a very successful way to communicate. That's a very nice. And how far away are you from that? Um, we're at we're we're below 400 cases a day, getting closer to 300 uh, cases a day. And we are, what's complicated is we are moving already into some of the phase one um, release. So, um, but it's also coming, each of these announcements like dog parks are open, uh, retail stores with street fronts that can maintain you know, a small number of people in the store. Yeah, the, the rules are the rules are fairly clear, but you have to spend a lot of time uh, keeping track. <laughs> but other than that, the rules are fair are fairly clear. But they're always being delivered with the message of, "But we're going to have to to see, and if there's a significant spike, we're going to have to roll back." So, yeah. so I think that what for for me was so useful was those very specific numbers. The publication of the data on a very timely basis, the accessibility of that data, so you can see the, the, the curve uh, declining, you see the number of new cases, it makes you feel that sense of control, that we're all in this together and we know what we need to achieve. And the yeah. rules make sense in accordance with uh, this very specific outcome, reducing the number of new cases. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So there's uh, there's there's so much to do. How about the United States? Where do we start? So the U.S. has invented an unbelievable cure. It turns out if we only drink Ajax, if everybody drank Ajax, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> some disinfectant, the the illness would go away. Um, the the U.S. I think. Um, you know, part of it is that uh, you can have the, the Swedish approach, you can have the Chinese approach, the quarantine approach. Um, they're very different. And each of them has cost and benefit. And, you know, at some point we'll argue, uh, but what's the right one for which country? Um, but what is clear is that there's no middle option. <laughs> If you quarantine half the people and not quarantine the other half, <coughs> that that just doesn't work. You need, and and, and the U.S. is basically taking the um, everybody choose. Like quarantine is is a public goods problem. People who are quarantining themselves are taking a loss for the safety of everybody, and if some people don't, that so that's that's one big issue that the U.S. can't decide. Uh, which strategy they're playing, but there's no mix. There's, there's no room for mixed strategy here. And then the other thing um, is <clears throat> the U.S. has no social safety net. So imagine a person who is a daily worker delivering food. And that person is waking up one day with fever and coughing. And they should quarantine themselves. But that person doesn't have uh, money to eat for 
uh, for two weeks for themselves or for their family. And now they have a choice. What, what do they do? Do they quarantine themselves for the good of the nation? Uh, or do they continue working? Um, you know, we, in Israel, we started tracking um, the history of people who became identified as, as, as carriers very early on. And they would publish their, their, their path in the beginning in social media, and not social media, in, in the news, but then through an app. And those people were like, you look at them and say, who are these people? Like, you know, I go to work and come back. Maybe I stop at the supermarket. Maybe I go for a walk. Those people, the first patients in Corona, like they were visiting 80 places a day. And you looked at it, you said, who are those people? Well, it turns out if you go to 80 places a day, you have a higher chance of being infected. So, so we have these super spreaders. And the super spreaders are uh, basically more likely to get infected and more likely to infect other people. It's not as if the moment they get infected, they start walking around and visiting more people. They always did that. That's why they have a higher risk and, and so on. And in general, these are low income, low social economic status individuals. Right? Um, they don't have a big office. They sit it all day, they, they do other things. Uh, statistically, um, so so a country like the U.S. Um, with no real camaraderie and no social network is is a place where the the super spreaders uh, are the least likely to quarantine themselves. Yeah, I think we're in a period now where we will see more cases amongst the either active protesters or the passively defiant. Um, I think we have a, a, a church now in Texas where the pastor uh, has died. Nineteen. Um, He's not the first. Um, there have been other pastors yeah. that, have, uh, that have died. Um, the, the thing about this one that's sad is that they had actually implemented what they thought were reasonable social distancing protocols within the church. So they had a very restricted number of people that were able to, to come in and participate in the service. And on top of that, they had a distance uh, uh, between each of the individuals and yet that was, and yet that was inadequate. And uh, so several of the, of the other prisoners are actually uh, ill now. Um. Yeah, uh, somebody said, it was a very uh, nasty comment, but somebody said that if this virus was just more deadly, all the anti-vaxxers would be gone. <laughs> yeah, well, um, we'll see if we're going to be lucky enough to have a vaccine um, to, uh, to be able to have that uh, twisted um, yeah. joy. It's actually, it's actually, you know, you, you said something about science. Um, I think both of you and I, um, on one hand, there's, you know, news keep on changing and it's very tough for science. On the other hand, uh, we're both uh, in awe of how science is going. Uh, collaboration, uh, help, um, speed. Uh, and I, I, think, I think actually that those, those stories, as well as the importance of vaccinations, it's a really... 
amazing opportunity uh, for that, right? It's, instead of uh, just looking at the um, mistaken estimations or, you know, the not mistakes, but, you know, uh, initial assumptions and so on, uh, I think I think it's one of science's most beautiful hours because because people are really coming together and lots of like things are happening very very fast lots of effort all kinds of really creative <laughs> uh, approaches mechanisms and so on um, I think that story is not not enough um, in the front like the politicians are making decisions about uh, you know what to close and what to open, but but the the real advances is going to come from uh, from science and that and that story. I wish I wish it was more central. I wish the reporting was not just about. I mean, you can read those things, but it's not the front page of uh, the process science is making. We're mostly focusing on the news is is how many people died today or yesterday rather than. Uh, the, the heroic effort that people people are making, and it's only an open, also an opportunity to get people to change their opinions about vaccination. Like with polio, I know you know because polio has not been around for such a long time, not in a big way. People stop worrying about it. And maybe now there'll be reinvigoration of interest in vaccination in general. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that there's a. Um an opportunity for us to really start to understand where uh, these deep level conspiracies uh, come from and revisiting the role of pseudoscientific belief in society. Um, right now, uh, there's just quite a bit of debate, disappointment, disgust, outrage on, on, on all sides. And it's a really important opportunity for us to learn how to improve those conversations. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to somebody today about uh, fake news. There's so much of it. Uh, so much of it. It's, it's, it's so crazy. Um, but what do you think would happen if we created a website for fake news and we said it was fake news? Would people still a little bit believe it? That's a kind of question number one. And if it looked real, will they also start doubt Fox News or something like that? Now, didn't uh, Facebook do an experiment on that and that they found that the information that was flagged as, I don't know, suspect or, or something like that uh, ended up having more people uh, believing it because it seemed as if it was, you know, alternative and, and, you know, we all take pride, right, in, in being okay. skeptical. We're taught to we're taught to be skeptical of the media that we're consuming. You know, when I was a kid, media literacy was a was a thing, and the generation kind of behind me, you know, we were taught you know we taught media liter literacy, and one of the things that we were trained on was be skeptical. So, if, you know, so I I think that what Facebook found was something along the lines of when information was flagged like that, it actually led people to be more likely to to believe it. Yeah, the thing I, the thing I remember from, from somebody's research is that when something seems really strange and flies in the face of logic, people share it more because it feels more, more sure-worthy. Whereas if you 
find something is run on the mill and not a conspiracy theory and so on, it's, it's not as exciting. So I think uh, when we talk about the great things that are happening in science in terms of uh, collaboration and communication, um, I think we're also starting to get to a point where there's some of the flaws and frustration, even within the scientific community of maybe um, publishing things uh, too soon, um, publishing things in a way that might be seen as more self-serving than uh, beneficial to, you know, adding, adding to the knowledge. People aren't taking enough time to see what's already been researched. And are we adding to that? Or are we, um, you know, doing a, a, a careful job of, of countering it with, with thoughtful deliberation? Um, what, are, what are some of your thoughts in terms of um, how we're doing with BioArchive and other, other sites where we're, you know, the, the power and of the preprint yeah. So, so I think I think the issue is, um, I don't think there's any malice, and I think everything comes from a good perspective. Uh, but there's such a sense of urgency. There's such a sense of urgency uh, <laughs> that that in the hierarchy of what's important, some things uh, some things go away. Um, and you know, I don't know what to tell you about this because, you know, for example, uh, do I think that the, that drug trials should be shortened for this? Yes. Um, do I think we need to revisit the the one year trial process? Maybe. Um, and is that basically a trade off between? Time needs and accuracy needs. Yes. So, so I think I think the whole community is um, trying to help. A little bit stressed. Every day seems like such a long time to wait. Uh, the, the people are taking some some shortcuts. Um, but you know, we we you and I both share the perspective that science is a self-correcting mechanism. So yes, they're going to be. Uh, more noise in the in the early days, but but hopefully it would fix itself when the stress settles down. Paul Bloom and I were talking about this, and one of the things that he was pointing out, um, you know, he had read the the J. Van Bevel uh, and and team. Uh, paper um, and, and a couple others that just talk about how much uh, social science research has been cranked out and and there's an issue of poor quality and then there's also this issue of scientists sort of not not staying in their lane and I I countered some of that with um, kind of the same optimism that you did which is that the motivation generally is very positive and there's this desire everyone wants to help in, in the way that they can. I have a friend who sews masks and she's got beautiful talent in that area. And I, I don't have that talent, um, but I was able to work with some other scientists and we were very curious about um, what some of the drivers were for people's uh, receptivity to um, believing in hoaxes. And you know, I, I have the ability to, you know, 
look at these kinds of questions and design experiments and rally some of the resources that we need and, and work through that kind of design and, and analysis. And that's what I have to, to offer. So I, I think that we're, we're trying to do the best we can um, with, with uh, helping out. So what are some of the things that you've been doing? Do you feel, um, you know, what, what papers have you, uh, is, you know, is your name going to, to pop up on? Uh, I know so many people uh, want to collaborate with you all the time. Uh, how are you managing that? What have you said yes to? Um, what, are you, what are you pondering? And then actually, how are you filling your day with things that maybe aren't about research at all? Yeah, so I, um, so I actually have not done any research. I've only done applied work. Um, and, you know, since I came to Israel, I started working on the question of how do you give messages in ways that people could, could listen. Um, and we, we looked at the distance education and tried to figure out what can work and not work in that system. Um, we created a couple of interventions for domestic violence uh, for, for women and, ch and children. Um, we created a plan for releasing prisoners, um, created plans for stimulus packages, uh, tried to get people to pre-buy pre from local businesses to try and give them uh, money. Uh, we tracked people online and given them the path of people with corona. We uh, created a national index for how adherent people were and created competition between cities. Um, we created um, a very large campaign for the Orthodox Jewish community and for the Muslim community for Ramadan, the Jewish one and separately for Ramadan. Um, and so, and, and the thing, the thing is that none of them are experiments. And um, what happened, what happened is that the government is not really interested <laughs> in experiments. And uh, when, uh, since I came here, I've been basically on this chair, you know, all the time. Um, actually, the last two days have started easing off, but for the first two months, it was like non, non-stop. Um, and and what, what I realized is, and you and I have this discussion a lot, is uh, how much uh, is our mission to study versus to apply? And in this case, you know, every opportunity I had, I, I would have taken um, to apply uh, what we know, but, but there weren't really uh, opportunities. Like, you know, the, even, even something like, like the stimulus package. No time to do a randomized control trial. Everything is so big, so much in the news. There's no way to do it. Um, what instructions do you give people? no real opportunity like it comes on national television everybody gets the same version we don't have this so so i i basically helped a lot to everybody uh, who wanted to uh, all the time and um, basically taking what we what we know already and saying based on what we know here is my best guess um, but but almost no almost no research
uh, a couple of projects that we, we did get going uh, on research um, were about uh, remote work. So I've been interested in remote work for a long time, uh, partially because I wanted to reduce traffic congestion. And maybe for two years, I've been trying to find businesses who would get people to, to work from home and see how it works. And <laughs> nobody wanted, guess what? Now they're working from home. Now working from home now is not the same. You have little kids and so on. Um, but we're doing a, a very large study on what is successful and, and not successful on, on work at home. So that's one uh, opportunity. They, I guess the second one is the education one, what's working and not working in terms of studying uh, kids, uh, K to 12 studying from home. And then the only even more academic study is, is trying to understand uh, the moral trade-offs that people are making between uh, saving lives and, and other aspects, financial, uh, privacy, and so on, and, and trying to understand um, basically morality through this. So, you know, in, in moral psychology, we give people questions like the trolley problems or, you know, what if, well, now there are real questions ahead. So, so we, we were lucky enough to uh, be able to study uh, these, these problems when they're really essential uh, for people. So I would say 95% advice, 5% academic. Um, and, you know, I have, to, there's, there's a, it's a very different process to, to give advice and, uh, and, and do applied work. And usually in a, in a regular month, we have ups and downs, we're hopeful, we're finding something, we, we bureaucracy, complexity. And during COVID, I had these ups and downs three times a day, right? You discover something, you talk to a politician, they decide something. Uh, instead, I mean, the, the, the ups and downs, the bureaucracy, the challenges, the, um, I don't think there's evil, but, but lack of thinking. Um, so, so it was very, very harsh. It was, it was very harsh, both because um, every ugly aspect of society uh, reveals itself uh, in, in a crisis like this. And then the second thing is you realize how difficult it is to make the right, the right choices, availability of data, all kinds of things like that. Yes. So I have, uh, I have one final question for you, which is um, the natural experiment that's happening on our lives is letting us uh, develop some good habits and some bad habits. How are you doing? Um, I know your life. We've been friends for many, many years. Uh, yeah. Much travel, uh, a say-do gap on fitness, um, the need to you know, always eat healthy foods. Yeah. Uh, those are just a few. Um, how are you doing? And uh, what do you hope will last? And what do you think is going to last? Let's, uh, let's hear a prediction. Yeah. So I haven't uh, been on the plane for over two months. Uh, last year, I traveled 300 days a year, <laughs> the last year. That's a big difference. Um, when I came here, the stress was so high. Uh, for the first six weeks, 
uh, I went for one walk a week. And the last three weeks are getting better. I uh, try to go for a run a few times a week. Um, I haven't eaten out. I, I don't cook real food, but you know, I make omelets and <laughs> cook something. Um, you know, the first, the first six weeks were very stressful and very odd because I didn't see anybody. But my dream was when this is over, I just want to go and be by myself, which, which sounds very strange, but I didn't want it by myself, no person. I wanted no email and no Zoom, and, you know, because I, I was really 7 a.m. to midnight just on calls and Zoom, and I have two phones and <laughs> all the time. And I just wanted alone time. Like it was, it was interesting because I didn't see anybody, but nevertheless, I felt very bombarded. Um, you know, I think, I think what, I hope, I hope some things will change, but uh, to make this change, um, I know I have to take, to take an action, right? It's not just by itself. Um, and, you know, I, um, it was a very, very stressful period, but uh, it, it certainly um, teaches me that the unsustainable part of uh, what, what I'm doing. Um, and I had a birthday, as, as you know, uh, not too long ago, and I, I took that day to, to reflect on life. And, and, and I have a list of things that I think I need to, to cut off. I, I've been very good in adding, 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 adding uh, more things. Um, and uh, it, it's just unsustainable. And, and this period is, is showing me that uh, how unsustainable um, exactly. So if you ask me what will change, uh, I think there'll be less travel. And not just in this next period when there are going to be travel restrictions or something. I think, I think as, a, as a life strategy, uh, there'll be less less travel. Uh, I think I'll carve more time that is mine to, to work and read. Uh, these last uh, two months, I didn't do anything on my own projects. I was just at, uh, on other people's uh, timetable. Um, so I think, I think having a bit more um, selfishness or you know, uh, confidence to say, these are my projects and what you want is less important for me than what I, what I want. Um, so I think, I think those would be, those would be the big ones. Uh, I hope that uh, coffee consumption will go down. <laughs> I, when I came here, I bought a new coffee machine and they brought me coffee for a month and I finished it in a week. Uh, <laughs> And it wasn't like one cup a month. It was. So I think, I hope that will change. And um, another good habit I got was I stopped reading the news first thing in the morning and before I go to sleep. I, I try to clear time in the middle of the day to read the newspaper and not, not too early and not too late. I hope that will stay. That's a very... Uh, it, waking up first thing in the morning, I, like, why do I do it to myself? I don't know. Going before it's going to sleep, it's also terrible. So. Yes. Well, those are, uh, those are wonderful ideas. And um, I 
hope that you're able to actually follow through on all of them now that you've made them public and you've shared them with me. I'm going I'm to committing. I'm committing. <laughs> so thank you so much. It was wonderful having a chance to just relax and, and talk about uh, what we're learning, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing with uh, the pandemic. And it's a very difficult time for all of us, but it's important to just stop and reflect and, and share what we're learning. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you and good seeing you. Wonderful to see you. Okay. Talk to you soon.